Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. We turn first to Romans chapter 3, and we will read into chapter 4. A reading from the word of the Lord, Romans 3, beginning at verse 21, and continuing to chapter 4, verse 8. In the section just before uh, Romans 3, 21, Paul has clearly set out that the Gentiles have fallen short of the glory of God. Chapter 2, the Jews also may preach the law, but they don't follow it. And then he comes to the conclusion in Romans 3, there is no one who is righteous, no, not even one. Romans 3, verse 21. But now, The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say? that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. I direct your attention especially to verse 5, Romans 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. And with that, we also read from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. If you have the Trinity Psalter hymnal, you can find that on page 881, 882. Lord's Day 23 comes at the end of the Catechism's look at each of the articles of the Apostles' Creed. It's examined the Creed. And then Lord's Day 23 asks us this question, but how does it help you now that you believe all this? 
And the answer is that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God, and I can receive this righteousness and make it my own in no other way than by faith alone. I'm very aware that in the month of October, uh, the Christian church uh, gives a reflection upon the great heritage, the providence of God that is ours in the Protestant Reformation. Your Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 23, poses for you and for me a very uh, important challenge. And how do you answer that challenge? The question is this, how are you right with God? In years past, I would often take my Hebrew students to a nearby synagogue on a Saturday morning for an educational visit. And one time, the leader of the synagogue had a conversation with us afterward. And one very perceptive student said, since the temple has been destroyed, there are no longer any sacrifices for sin in Jerusalem. And then he said, if that's the case, how are you right with God? And without missing a beat, the leader of the synagogue said, by our good works. There you have it. By our good works. God adds up my good works at the end of my life, and if I have enough good works, I live with Him. If I do not have enough good works, I do not live with God in eternity. There it was. And so the question is not an idle question, is it? It deals with eternity. And it deals with your very body and soul. How are you right with God? How would you answer that question tonight? Many people who do not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ probably would have very little trouble with the question. Because for them, they would say, well, Christianity doesn't offer me anything. Christianity is so negative. I have to give up so much if I become a Christian. Christianity doesn't offer me much. What's the benefit of believing all this? Nothing really. But the good Lord has news for you today. Those who believe will lose nothing. But rather, as the Scriptures promise, all things are yours, which makes us to be the richest people in the world. All things are yours, for you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so, by believing all this, that is to say, what is summarized in the Apostles' Creed, 
what is the truth of the Christian faith means that we become heirs of eternal life. I'm not saying mere understanding of it. Many people understand it, but they don't believe it. But if we hold these truths sincerely in our hearts, then we have eternal life. And eternal life means having all the riches of Jesus Christ really and truly. Righteous in Jesus Christ means that we are accounted, reckoned, totally, totally and completely perfect. Perfect in Him who is the second Adam of human history. Tonight we look at Romans 4, verse 5, and along with it, the summary of the Word of God as we have it in Lord's Day 23 under the theme, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. And first of all, the Catechism points out our sorry condition. But then secondly, God's perfect provision. And finally, how it is ours through faith, faith alone. Now the teaching that we are dealing with tonight, especially focused in Lord's Day 23, question and answer 60, is that of justification. Justification. This teaching focuses on one aspect, a single aspect, of our salvation. It is not the only doctrine taught in Scripture. Many other doctrines are taught as well, of course. It's not the entire story of salvation. It's not focused upon sanctification or glorification. But it is a very fundamental teaching of the Word of God, which, if we do not understand it correctly, causes our life and our faith to go askew, to be thrown off kilter. But the Protestants sometimes misunderstand the Roman church on this very point. The Roman church also believes in justification. It does. It also teaches the necessity of grace and the importance of faith. And when I tell people that, I say, well, then what was the Protestant Reformation all about? Aren't we basically splitting hairs. Don't we basically teach and assume the same thing? And the answer is, not at all. Not at all. We are not even on the same page when it comes to many of the basics of the Christian faith. If you want to summarize what the Protestant Reformation was about in terms of its difference with the Roman Church, it is one word, the word alone. The solas. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. That's the difference. And so we come back again to that question, what's the benefit? What what do I gain by believing all this? Well, that I am an heir of everlasting life. But to understand the importance of that, we first look at our sorry condition. And it is even remarkable that even on this point, So many people are not on the same page. As I said, um, our Jewish neighbors believe that we are right by our good works. Because many times Jews have said to me, uh, man is basically good. They say that. Man is basically good. I once asked a a Mormon friend of mine, I said, do you believe that man, in, in theory, could live a perfect life? And he said, yes, in theory, we could all live perfect lives. 
And even many Christians would say, okay, we are not perfect. We will acknowledge that. We will confess that we are not perfect. But man is not as bad as he could be. There's still lots of traces of goodness in many, many people. Man was injured in the fall. He stumbled badly. But he's not really dead. That's too negative. Brothers and sisters, consider what the Apostle Paul says by inspiration. In Romans 1, he makes clear that man is confronted with the, with the reality that God really exists. His eternal uh, power and majesty and wisdom are on clear display, and yet man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. And that bad theology then leads to all kinds of bad ethics. People start to worship animals, rocks. They start to uh, become abusive of one another, sexually and otherwise. Man goes astray ethically when his theology is askew. But then he goes on in chapter 2 to say, and the, and the Jews who have the law and who say, don't commit adultery, don't steal, Paul turns around and says, well, you preach that, but do you, do you commit adultery? Do you steal? And the sad case is that even within the community of the Jewish people who had the Torah, who had the laws of God, the Word of God, they too fall short of the glory of God. Bad theology leads to bad ethics. Evil beliefs lead to evil behavior. Unnatural lust, murder, stealing, and a whole host of sins then follow suit. Don't be surprised at the flood of wickedness that we see in our world and in our own nation today, the origins are in the human heart. Paul says that this pervasive sinfulness belongs to both Jews and Gentiles, so that the whole of mankind stands condemned. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul then quotes in Romans 3 from Psalm 14 to the effect that no one is righteous. No, not even one. The Catechism in Answer 60 notes that man commits grievous sins. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, Grievous sins. What might that be? Murder, hatred, lying, profanity, lust, bitterness, anger. I have kept none of the commandments of God. You know, on Sunday mornings we hear the law of God read. We often tune them out. Does familiarity breed contempt? when it comes to the commandments of God? Well, not for the child of God. For the child of God loves the law of God. Psalm 119 is so clear about that. But the child of Christ, the child of God is also aware, painfully aware, personally aware, that the laws of God that he loves are also the commandments that he has has not kept. They are incredibly good in and of themselves. We can see there the perfection of God, the holiness of God is clearly displayed 
in His commandments. And the child of God wants to keep those commandments. But perhaps we tune them out sometimes because we have tamed them too easily. Tamed them. What do I mean? I mean this. Our Lutheran brothers and sisters in that tradition tend towards pietism. Tend. That is to say, they focus upon the wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ has won for them on the cross and resurrection. And so what they nurture is the piety that sustains that relationship with Christ. And it can lead, it doesn't have to lead, but it tends towards a kind of quietism in their lives. But the Reformed tradition runs into another danger. Namely this, we become too chummy with the law of God. We tame it. We listen to the commandments every Sunday and we tame them. I believe there's only one God. I haven't set up an idol in my home to which I bow down and worship. I haven't taken anyone's life this week. I haven't stolen anyone's property. I've not done that badly. We tame the commandments. And the Word of God comes back and asks us this question, Really? Read again the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I, Jesus Christ, take that law to a much deeper level. Much deeper than we think in simply sustaining and maintaining an outward conformity. To understand justification, we take ourselves to a courtroom. Courtroom. And the judge in this courtroom is God Himself. He's a judge who knows both our external behaviors. He sees that clearly. But He also understands clearly the motivations of our hearts. That is an open book before the judge, God. He knows what we have done and He knows why we did it, why we said it, why we thought it. Now, congregation, in a courtroom where a judge judge presides over a case, the judge in his seat, in her seat, is not interested in the character of the person being charged. The judge has no interest in whether the person is nice or nasty, whether the person is kind or cruel, whether he is lazy or lovable. The courtroom has only one interest, only one interest, Is the person charged, guilty or not guilty, of the charge? Has he or she broken the law? That's my only interest. Nothing else. And therefore, justification is not dealing with sanctification. That inner transformation that the Spirit works in our lives. It's not dealing with glorification. The concern is focused on the verdict. Nothing more. What's the verdict? How am I right with God? How am I right with God vis-a-vis with respect to His laws? That's why I said at the beginning of the sermon, this is no idle question. It deals with eternity. How are you right with God? How do you relate to God's law and His holiness so that you are legally in the right? 
We can claim God as our Father all we like. And in Christ we can. And in Christ we do. But the single focus in justification is on the last day. When I stand before the judge of all the earth, the judge of the living and the dead, am I right with him? And if I am right with him, on what basis am I right with him? The question before the judge will be this. Is Mark Vanderhart guilty of breaking the commandments of Almighty God? What's the verdict of the court? Now, judges and juries, if they are acting properly, deal, they arrive at verdicts on the basis of evidence. Evidence that is presented in the court. And in our sorry condition, we supply the court with all the the damning and condemning evidence. My conscience keeps telling me that I'm guilty. You did it, even when no one else saw you do it. I can't turn my conscience off as if it was a, a DVD player or a video or something like that. I can't turn it off. It accuses me late at night so that I cannot sleep. And what is more, I find that in my walk of life there's this constant, constant inclination to drift. To drift. To move to the left, to move to the right. To get off the path that God has laid before me. You know, someone once said, walking the Christian life is walking on a tightrope. Walking the tightrope is hard. Falling off is easy. Anyone can do that. To stay on that rope, that's the difficult part. And brothers and sisters, my flavor of evil might not be your flavor of evil. And the devil constantly puts before us all the flavors of evil in his bag of tricks. So when he finds that you really love this kind of evil or that kind of perversion, he constantly supplies you. Our condition is not just sorry, it is pathetic. The struggle is real and the struggle is lifelong. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined towards all evil, this is our confession. Oh, but someone might process, but I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying really hard. I'm doing my best, we might say to the judge. Well, go ahead, tell that to the judge. And maybe your life could be graded as a B plus. That's not a bad grade. But it's not perfect, is it? Trying to get past the judge with a B plus is like jumping across the canyon of the, uh, the Great Canyon. The Grand Canyon. Now, if any of you have been to the Grand Canyon, you stand on one of the lookout spots and you see the other side, that's a pretty big chasm in the Grand Canyon. But let's say someone leaps across. They jump. And let's say they miss the other side by one yard. You would say, on the one hand, that was a pretty awesome leap. That was a great jump. But if you miss the other side by one yard, you're dead. You didn't make it. You're dead. 
impressive life, impressive leap, but you still failed. It can't get any more worse than this. And we are repeat offenders too, aren't we? Deuteronomy 21 says that if you have repeat, if you have someone in the community of faith that is a repeat offender, a son who is rebellious and debauched, the parents were to take him to the elders of the community. The elders would weigh the evidence, and then if guilty, he would be executed. He would be stoned. Let all Israel hear this and fear. And the distressing fact is that the conscience might be right. And that is frightening. I must live with my conscience. We Christians are like people who are citizens of a new country. Understand what I'm saying. By grace, we have been made citizens of a heavenly commonwealth. And it will never pass away. That's where our home is. That's where our citizenship is. But because we came from another country, the dead world, we still have the accent of that other place. We still have the clothing of that old place. We still have the, the, the tastes, the inclinations for that old country, the world where sin was. We are citizens of a new realm, but boy, we keep looking back like Lot's wife. And we just don't want to leave that old world. So how can Paul say in Romans 4, verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. You see, that's what justification is all about. Legally, I'm guilty, but the judge judges otherwise. How can he do that? I'm ungodly and I'm guilty. And yet God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the wicked. And here we see, brothers and sisters, God's perfect provision. As, Paul, as John says in 1 John 3, if our hearts condemn us, He, that is God, is greater than our hearts. God takes all of the justice that was aimed at us and He aims it at His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the heartbeat of the Reformation. No, it's not the whole story of salvation. We're not dealing with sanctification and glorification tonight. No. But once the Reformation churches understood the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of justification, it was like an earthquake. The tectonic plaints of theology and of the whole society began to move and to shake. It revolutionized the preaching and the living of many, many Christians. And once it begins to dawn on our souls what God's perfect provision is, then Christ comes like a breath of fresh air. A cool breeze on a hot and muggy day. And that is summed up in that word that is in the center of answer 60. That one word, nevertheless. My conscience accuses me. And in fact, I have broken every commandment of God. Nevertheless. Beautiful word. Because there it shows the tremendous contrast between my sorry condition and God's perfect provision. This is amazing grace. 
Let me illustrate. It's an old illustration. You've probably heard it before. A man on death row, guilty of actually committing the crimes that put him on death row. The date of his execution has been set, and someone comes to the prison and says to him, I have good news for you, sir. Now, he says, what's the good news? Would this be good news? You tell a man on death row, here's some good news. Be good. That would not be good news for a man who's sentenced to be executed. By this point in his life, he probably figured out, I should have led a much better life. And that's why churches who only preach be good, be good, be good, then you are good, are not bringing good news. I'm not against being good. But if I'm being sentenced to death, good news would be this. Someone has taken your case. He loves you and he has been executed in your place. The man on death row says, really? But I'm the guilty party. We know. He knew. He knows. But he died in your place. You're free to go. Go and sin no more. You're free to go. Someone has died in your place, really and truly. You can well imagine that it would take days, weeks, months for that, for that fact to, for the man to just wrap his mind around that. How can that happen? I'm a vile sinner. I, I broke the law. I committed that murder. And he died for me? He died for you. See, that's when the when we stand in the docket on trial, and the judge says, "I find the defendant not guilty." I, the true and only judge, the final judge, find this man, this woman, this young person, not guilty. Chaos erupts in the in the courtroom. People cry out. How can you do that, judge? The person's guilty. Is this a legal fiction? What are you doing? This is not right. What is God thinking? What is God doing justifying the ungodly? The evidence is all there. It's all there. It's clear. How can God justify Himself? Is this not a gross mistake? No, it is not a gross mistake. Not at all, congregation. But we learn... We learn in the Gospel that incredible story that happened in the trial. There's a double transference going on here. On the one hand, the guilt, your guilt, the guilt of all God's elect is really placed on Christ. And if it's placed on Christ, reckoned to be His, then He must die the death of the cross, the death accursed of God. He must die that death. But that's not the whole story. The righteousness of that perfect Lamb of God is reckoned to be yours. It's like putting on a garment of pure, pure, um, pure cloth. The righteousness of Christ. And it is with that righteousness we stand and will stand before the judge of the whole earth. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He who knew no sin, Christ, 
became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. This was already portrayed in the Old Testament when you brought the, the, the animal that had no blemishes, no flaws. Very important. The mediator must not have any flaws. But you, the sinful person, put your hand on it. You identify with it. And now that animal that knew no blemish becomes blemished. The animal that knew no sin now becomes sin. Now the animal must die as a sin offering. God grants to us, His people, Christ's perfect righteousness. And here's where the righteousness of Christ, that, uh, that obedience of Christ, His act of obedience throughout His whole life, is also an important part of our justification. Christ kept God's law perfectly His whole life. So that in justification, it is as if I had lived a life just as perfectly as Christ did. That perfection is imputed to us, to you, to me. It is reckoned mine. It is granted to me out of sheer grace. This is what is mine when I stand in the heavenly courtroom and when the judge passes sentence. 2 Corinthians 5. And therefore, the chaos that breaks out in the, in, the, in the courtroom, the outcries against the judge of all the earth, are without merit. The, the accusation that God has committed a legal fiction is not true. The righteousness of Christ is really given to us, His people, to the elect. So that you tonight, brothers and sisters, by grace alone, through faith alone, cannot be reckoned more righteous than you already are reckoned. The righteousness of Christ is perfect. And it is granted to us by grace through faith. This is a real gift. It is absolutely amazing. It fills the soul of every child of God with true joy. And if anyone says that simply makes us lazy, they don't understand the transforming power of the Gospel in our hearts. Christ is everything. He's vital. Now, boys and girls, did you take your vitamins this morning? Vital vitamins. They have that same little part of the word, vita, life, life. Christ is vital for us. He gives us His righteousness. He is the sure foundation that will allow me to dare to enter the courtroom of heaven. I'm not alone in that courtroom. No, I have a counselor, a paraclete, an advocate, 1 John chapter 2, who actually loves me. And he's with me. I'm not alone in that courtroom. He's right there with me. He really cares me about so much that he goes to the execution with my guilt and I live. I live because His perfection is mine, mine to keep, as if I had never sinned at all. I am ungodly in myself, yet God justifies the ungodly, the wicked, and I believe it. And how can He do it? Because He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Jesus Christ will not perish will have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into this world to condemn it. This world was already condemned. Read Genesis 3. The whole 
human race was under condemnation, but God sent his son to save this world, to save his people, to die for his elect. Then, these other theories have no basis whatsoever. Away with the thought that in justification, what happens is that God will fuse into your soul righteousness. So that in the day of days when we are judged, we are judged on the basis of Christ's righteousness and my righteousness. Away with that. Justified by works as well as grace. Justified by Christ and the merits of the saints. Justified by Christ's holiness and my holiness. I think I've used this illustration with you before, but I think it's to the point. I met a lady one time, raised in the Reformed faith her entire life. She said, Pastor, I've given a check to the deacons for $500. Now, Reverend, I know, I know, you can't buy your way into heaven. But it helps. That's what she said. But it helps. Well, a check for $500, if that helps, then $5,000 will help a lot, won't it? $50,000 will you know, put you in the front of the line. I mean, what do people think? I can't buy my way into heaven, but these, these little things that I do for the Christian, in the Christian life help me? I hope to get a B plus in the grade? Brothers and sisters, the righteousness that passed God's muster must be perfect, and Christ's righteousness is absolutely perfect. And it's yours. By grace. Through faith. Brings us to our last point. Through faith alone. You know, in the Christian life, we talk a lot about faith. And rightly so. Lord's Day 7 already defined for us what true faith was. It's not only a knowledge and conviction that what God says in His Word is true, but it's also a deep-rooted assurance. But now we learn that that faith is uh, not the missing element. I mean, in the, in the history of the Reformed churches, there were those who said, well, okay, God has done away with the law, obedience to the law as a means of salvation, but He replaced the means of salvation as faith. So faith becomes the new law. But brothers and sisters, how, how is faith to be the new law that we keep? Not. Nor is Christ the one who did 99%. And all we need to add is that little 1% of that's faith. That's the 1% that seals the deal. But then the devil could certainly whisper in your conscience, but have you believed enough? Is your faith sincere? What about those last sins you committed? Maybe you aren't really a believer. Maybe you really aren't a child of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, faith is not a new law. Faith is unworthy, but it is not worthless. It adds nothing to your salvation. It has no merit to add to salvation. It receives. It comes to God with empty hands. Empty and looks to the Lord to fill those hands. It trusts the sure promises of God, the one who justifies 
the ungodly. Therefore, the last effort on man's part failed. It crumbled. Man can only come with an empty cup for God to fill it. You know, let me, again, let me illustrate. If I were sinking down in quicksand, the most horrible way to die, I should think, and I reach out my hand, let's say that represents faith, I can reach out my hand all I like, but that hand is still going to go down with me into the quicksand. What I need is someone who is stronger than I and who is standing on solid ground and who is willing and able to take hold of my poor weak hand and then pull me up out of the quicksand. Someone who stands on a rock, let's say, and grabs hold of me. My hand is weak in itself. It can do nothing. But Christ is everything. He's everything. He's the one who takes hold of us and pulls us out of the miry clay and sets our feet upon a rock, Psalm 40, so that others can see and give praise to God. Because if Christ takes hold of us, we will not sink. Despite my accusing conscience, despite all of my perverse inclinations, Christ, once He takes hold of us, He will never let you go. He says in John 10, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. No one, nothing, shall separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only faith, true faith, in the midst of my sad condition, can grip this good news of Christ. And therefore, on Judgment Day, God will treat you and me as if we had never sinned. But He will pronounce the verdict that is ours by grace alone through faith alone. He's dressed us in the righteousness of Christ. This is how He sees us. In Christ alone. That's why Romans 8, verse 1 can go on to say, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I believe that. You must believe that too. That gives rise then to that question that we started. What's the benefit of believing all this? That I am right with God. How are you right with God? Even though my situation is very, very sorry, desperate, nevertheless, the righteousness, satisfaction, redemption that is in Christ is ours. And that weak hand of faith lays hold of us. No more condemnation. I believe that. But I feel so guilty here than the Gospel. No condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But pastor, I still struggle. So do I. God knows it. But with regard to your standing with respect to the law, He judges us not guilty. What good is all this? Much in every way. Believing all the wonderful teachings of the Word of God, I am right with God because of Christ. I know of no better verdict than that could come out of God's court because of Christ alone, God can and does justify the ungodly. Amen. Let us pray.
Gracious God, the Christian life is not an easy life. It is not a bed of roses. And we want to fight our sinful nature at every turn. And sometimes we take two steps forward, but we find ourselves going three steps backwards. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, that in Him there is no more condemnation. And the life we live in this body, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and who gave Himself for us. So Father, help feed our soul with the pure Gospel of Jesus Christ, His righteousness alone. Sheer grace, that redemption is now ours in Him. Strengthen us, Father, in this confidence. Strengthen us in this faith so that we might not weaken under the assault of our enemies, but through your Holy Spirit, be strengthened in that faith. For Jesus' sake, amen.